Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. In Italy, the museums are owned and run by the state. The good news is that there were no job losses, no one getting furloughed, and no one was selling artwork. That's Tracy Roberts, co-founder and vice president of Love Italy since 2014, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and appreciation of Italy's unique cultural heritage. It's based in Rome with a U.S. 501c3 supporting organization called American Friends of Love Italy. Over the years, Love Italy has funded multiple restoration projects of churches, frescoes, monuments, and antiquities. Tracy is a Californian-born expat who has called Rome her home since 1982. In 1984, about a decade before the advent of the web, she founded a company called English Yellow Pages, Italy's annual phone directory of English-speaking professionals, businesses, and services. She also served as international press attaché to Gianni De Michelis during his terms as Italy's deputy prime minister and as foreign minister. She has assisted the American Federation of Arts in New York with the development of special exhibitions and maintains influential connections with the leadership of Italy's cultural heritage. A recipient of the International Standout Woman Award conferred in the Italian Parliament, she has a BA from the University of California, Los Angeles. Tracy, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks, Max. It's an honor to be a part of your podcast. <laughs> well, I don't know about an honor, but it's a privilege. How about that for me to have you who weathered the storm in Italy through the pandemic and we stayed in touch throughout it. But I'd like you to describe what life is like in Rome as we record this today. Well, we're just about back to normal. We're still walking around with masks, but those might be eliminated in the next few days. And it's time to come back to Italy. There's no mass tourism. You can even see the Trevi Fountain without having to look over the masses of people there. And would you say that tourism from Europeans will be coming ahead of tourism from Americans from everything you can discern? Yes, I would say that. Actually, the Europeans have started to come and some Americans but the key word is Americans. Everyone wants the Americans to come. And that's because we leave big tips, among other things. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you stay at nice hotels and you leave big tips. <laughs> but Tracy, in the course of the last year, as all was being navigated, there was a great deal of change in the life of Rome. So how did they survive all of this? It was terrible, Max. There are a lot of protests in the streets. Shop owners weren't receiving the money that was promised. And it was a very, very scary moment for a lot of people. But people will come back and things will pick up eventually. And you've been there for a very long time. Tell us about what got you there and what's kept you in Rome all these years. I came to Rome just after graduating in linguistics at UCLA, and I thought, well, it'd be great to come over for experience and live in Italy for a little bit before I got a serious job back at home. And after I'd been here for a year, I came up with an idea to do a Yellow Pages for English speakers, what I called the English Yellow Pages. I didn't think it was that original in that in LA, we have women's yellow pages, children's yellow pages, or we used to have when yellow pages existed. 
So I thought, wouldn't it be great to do a Yellow Pages of English speakers? So I collected names of English-speaking doctors, dentists, plumbers, mechanics, etc. And the business lasted for over 25 years. And meanwhile, while I was doing the English Yellow Pages, there were so many other opportunities that came up like working for the foreign minister of Italy, which was very exciting. And then I started a family. So Rome eventually became my home. Even though I feel privileged to have been raised in Santa Monica, and I love my American roots, living in Italy is definitely an enriching experience. I mean, imagine walking around Rome's historic center in the evening, having a drink with friends in Piazza Navona in front of Bernini's magnificent fountains, and then dinner in piazzas, eating amazing meals. Now, how can you beat it? There's definitely something special about Italy. What do you think is the biggest misconception that Americans in general have about life in Italy? I think sometimes poor Italy, it's often portrayed in novels and films with those characteristic stereotypes, often written by people who really haven't lived here. Things like the mafia or the Latin lover. I mean, there is that, but there's so much more. Italians are creative, they're dynamic, they're theatrical, but the more you live the Italian experience, the more you love it. And Americans who come by cruise ships That's been the bane of Venice, of course, for now some years. And the hope is that that will be stopped finally. It resumed again just a few weeks ago, right? Right. It comes up in the papers all the time. Everyone wants it to stop. Nobody likes seeing those huge ships floating by the main squares in Venice. So eventually it'll stop. But when? Tracy, you get around on a Vespa, you have a car, you take the train, you fly. How do you make your way around Italy and how often are you going north to south? The great thing about Italy is the fast train. You know, I was just in Los Angeles and everyone lives on those freeways there. But in Italy, whether you're going around in your Vespa, which is necessary because nobody could really get in the center of the city with a car, unless you're actually a resident there. And now I go around on my electric bicycle because you just see so much things that you don't usually notice. When it was difficult to travel, I just got in my nice little convertible car and started driving around Italy and seeing places that I had never even heard of before. And some of those places, of course, included museums. I'm wondering how Italian museums have been weathering the pandemic. Well, Max, you have to remember that in Italy, the museums are owned and run by the state, the government. So the good news is that there were no job losses, no one getting furloughed, and no one was selling artwork to to maintain the cost. (laughs) They were just waiting for the storm to pass. And meanwhile, everyone was programming for future events all on Zoom. That's a counterpoint to what's happened on this side of the pond, of course, with museums furloughing, terminating, and also selling art. And are you saying that on a national footing, it's been part of the dialogue that museums will return as they were before? Or are there changes we can expect among Italian museums as COVID recedes? The reforms and the changes started before COVID. I think it's a very exciting change that's going on in Italy. 
it's actually been quite a revolution in the government regarding cultural heritage and culture in general. But let me give you just a little bit of context. Most Italians will tell you, well, they pay their taxes, and so they consider it's the government's job to support museums and conservation. They don't have that philanthropic spirit like they do in the United States. But you have to give them credit that they had no tax benefits on supporting museums. So this is something that is changing in Italy. If you go back to even 2001, one of the first public-private partnerships took place in Herculaneum, which is an archaeological site just out of Pompeii. So in 20 years since it started, David Packard and the Packard Humanities Institute, which is based in Los Altos, California, has given $50 million. Think of this. David Packard just gave a simple donation of $50 million. No tax write-off, no name recognition, no publicity, and it wasn't a sponsorship. It's what Italians call micinate. Micinate comes from the word Messinus, who was one of the first patrons of the arts, and he was a very good friend of the Roman Emperor Augustus. So a Micinate is very different from a sponsor, which hasn't existed until just recently for cultural heritage. But then something happened. In about 2011, Diego de la Valle, who is the fashion designer of Todd Shoes, decided to sponsor restoration of the Colosseum. He was willing to pay $30 million, but the problem is that there were no legal agreements for sponsorships. I mean, how could they carry this agreement out? So it took three years to find a way, and it happened. There was great publicity for De La Valle. It was revolutionary, and everyone was talking about it. And actually, his example was so important in leading the way for other fashion designers to follow suit. For example, the Fendi Fashion House did a fashion show at the Trevi Fountain. It was amazing. So it was basically an awakening moment for the Italian government to get money. And so what happened after that is they decided to start working on a reform. So 2014, reform begins, and they gave 20 museums autonomy. And then later in a second phase, 40 museums. And what this meant is that all of a sudden, museums would have to start thinking about fundraising. They would have to sell tickets, and they'd have to find sponsor. It was very difficult, and it's still work in progress. It's not that easy because, you know, Italian museums, they can't invoice companies. They can only give a simple receipt, which makes it difficult for companies to write it off. But in this reform, they also came up with a law which is called the art bonus. It's not perfect, but it's a start, and it allows Michinate to make a donation, and they can write off 60% of their donations in three years. So there's still a lot to be done. But just to give you an example of the mentality that the government and uh, what everyone is going against is, but we went on a group visit, our group with Love Italy went on a group visit to see conservation work in the Doma Sauria. You know that place, Max, right? It's the golden house of Emperor Nero. And after the visit, 
our president, Richard Hodges, who's a world-renowned archaeologist with vast experience all over the world, as well as being director of the Penn Museum in Philadelphia and on the board of the Packard Foundation, he said to one of the directors there, this place is amazing. You need to sfruttare, you need to exploit it more, take advantage. And oh my goodness, the woman came out and said, professor, you, we don't use that word. And he said with his confidence, you know what, you're wrong. This is why American families come to Rome for three days and they go to Frankfurt for five. This is your petroleum. You need to exploit it. And would you say, Tracy, that that kind of reluctance on the part of bureaucrats who populate the cultural ministry, it's long held and a change is what you're describing as a reform is not taking root completely. That's going to take time, isn't it? It's going to take time. But you know, Max, it's very important in Italy who you work with. You can find directors of museums like the Etruscan Museum of Villa Giulia, Valentino Nizza. Everything's possible, just like Alfonsino Russo, who you met, Max, who's the director of the archaeological park of the Colosseum. Things work. They go fast. So it's really important who you work with. You know, I don't think that's that different in one sense from American museums. If you have a director who is ambitious and full of ideas, things happen if they're cautious and seeking just to make sure there's no risk. That also can be the result. But let's back up for a second and understand better the cultural bureaucracy. You mentioned museum directors, but then there's the superintendenza and there's the Ministry of Culture. Can you take us from top down? How does it work? Okay, so you have your minister who is appointed and it depends on the government and how long the government lasts. Instead, you have the bureaucrats or the people that are actually appointed within the ministry that are very important. But the fact that museums are now autonomous, as long as they're following by the rules, they are pretty much free to do whatever they want to do for their museum. So, Tracy, the fact that some museums are now autonomous, quite a few of them, implies that there is a change in their latitude to make decisions, to undertake new programs. How is that different from the museums left behind that aren't the subject of reforms? Well, eventually, I'm sure that they will become autonomous as well. If you look at the example of these young directors or forward-thinking directors or international directors, you'll see that amazing things are happening in their museum and they're moving forward and they're raising funds and they're carrying out many projects and exhibitions. One of the things that's changed since the reform is that the Ministry of Culture let it be possible for foreign-born directors often approaching with an entrepreneurial spirit. Can you talk a bit about that change? Yes, that was very controversial, but it was a great thing for Italy. If you think of, for example, the German director of Buffizi in Florence, Eike Schmidt, he's become practically a rock star. But um, he did something a couple months ago that created scandal by some, and he was applauded by others. He invited an Italian social media influencer Chiara Ferragni, to come to the museum. Chiara has 24 million followers. 
And what she did is she took a photo of herself in frayed shorts in front of Botticelli's The Birth of Venus, the goddess of love, and comparing her to a contemporary social media goddess. You can imagine the reaction. Scandal. But you know what? The young ticket sales went up 27%. And the kids are even asking parents to take them to the Uffizi after seeing Uffizi TikTok videos. I mean, it's crazy. But you know what? Dr. Schmidt was quoted as saying, our collections belong to everyone, above all, younger generations, not just a self-proclaimed cultural elite. And you can imagine the reactions, but he doesn't care. He has his museum at heart. Yeah, and I think that type of fresh approach is something that there'll be a lot of clucking and tut-tutting no matter what. But I I do agree that we're seeing a change also in how audiences think about historical collections as opposed to contemporary art. Now, Tracy, you started as a co-founder of Love Italy almost seven years ago. Tell us what led you to put that extraordinary effort together. Love Italy was founded to raise gifts for conservation projects through crowdfunding, lots of rewards, and a wonderful way to allow the world to participate and connect to Italy. So the idea came up in a conversation with a Roman of Romans by the name of Luigi Capello, who had spent many years in Silicon Valley. Luigi created a digital startup accelerator at the train station in Rome. And he's got this can-do attitude. So especially at the time when we had our conversation, it was in a moment that I found was a very negative moment in Italy where many Italians were saying, there's no future to Italy, send your kids abroad, and you know, negative, negative, and negative. Instead, Luigi, everything was possible. And if you saw what he was doing with this startup accelerator, it was amazing. I was creating jobs with young people. So we talked about, wouldn't it be great to do crowdfunding for monuments? Very ambitious. He said, come to my office tomorrow and let's do it. Here we are, Luigi and I, we have this great idea, but we needed the cultural credibility. So back to David Packard and Herculaneum, Richard Hodges is on the board of Packard's foundation. And at the time he was president of the American University of Rome, he is definitely admitted to that club of elite. But you know what? When I talked to him about the idea of Love Italy, he said, that sounds like fun. Because you know, someone like Richard, he really believes that culture should be made accessible to all. We should reach out to the families and people that love Italy. So after that, we created a nonprofit with a group of people from various experiences and all who are passionate about supporting Italy. So it started with crowdfunding. We then set up our 501c3 in the U.S., a nonprofit organization in Menlo Park, California, to support conservation projects with U.S. tax-deductible donations. And Tracy... Tell us about one of the conservation projects you've been spearheading, maybe before the pandemic or even during, whatever might come to mind. Right. Well, I'm proud to say that actually Pompeii is about to publish a report about the Pompeii project that we crowdfunded for. So that's a great accomplishment. After that, we were contacted by the Basilica, the Church of St. Francis of Assisi, 
to help them raise funds through crowdfunding for conservation work on one of the frescoes in the lower church. So this church was built after St. Francis' death in 1222 to house his remains. And it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site with Giotto and his school of frescoes all over. It's breathtaking. But this was before the pandemic, and they had 6 million visitors a year. One of the things that's not so great about these 6 million visitors is the body heat and their perspiration, which is toxic to these frescoes. So little by little, these frescoes in some way are starting to disintegrate and they need conservation work. So the friars asked for our support because they're against asking for money to enter House of God. And anyway, the money that they do collect is usually to help poor people. So I went to Sisi and I met with the father custodian and we talked about the project. And then he said, why don't you join me for lunch? So I walked down this long, narrow corridor with him, and we ended up in this huge room with all the friars about to eat lunch with food from their gardens. And you could see statues of popes on the walls. I mean, I felt like I was in a Harry Potter movie. It was so bizarre and wonderful lunch. And then afterwards, I was invited to see their library, and then another incredible experience. I walk into this room with this wonderful friar with white gloves, and he's showing me these manuscripts that go all the way back to the 1200s with calligraphy and beautiful pictures. And little by little, they're disintegrating. And he looked at me, can you please help? Maybe find an American donor. And these are all part of the experiences, though, the donors that when they participate in our projects, you know, we take them behind the scenes. And it's really quite exciting. But then it goes on because I realized that Sisi is a sister city with San Francisco. And I thought, okay, well, I was about to go to San Francisco anyway. So I went to the mayor's office and met with some of the members of the sister city committee. And everything is basically stopped, slowed down with the pandemic. But now things are starting up again. And actually, the Sister City Committee in San Francisco has decided to adopt a restoration project in the city of Assisi, what they call an edicola, or a little religious shrine that's on the walls of the city. So, you know, these are all very exciting projects. And anyone listening to your podcast, we'd love for them to get involved with us. So what do you hope to take on in the coming months now that Italy is slowly reopening? Another thing that I really want to focus on is our collaboration with the American Federation of Arts. Before the pandemic, even a couple of years before, we've been working on a show for American museums to bring Italian works of art to American museums. One, for example, is called Inventing Baroque which is about painted and sculpted models from the Barberini Gallery in Rome. Or another show is put together with the Colosseum on the Severn Dynasty about Rome's first emperor from North Africa. We're hoping that American museums will start opening up for business again and we can carry on these shows that we've been programming in the last couple of years. And another thing, Max, is something very dear to you, a loan program to American museums. 
Remember when you were in Rome and we went to go see the Villa Giulia Etruscan Museum storerooms with all those confiscated vases? That would be an amazing project to finance and get PhD students to study some of these amazing works of art that are just closed up in a storeroom. It's an extraordinary trove. It's works of art that the Carabinieri seized in the course of decades, starting in 1929 under Mussolini, from antiquaries trying to sell them illegally. And the government confiscated them all. But they're all stored. They're unpublished, unillustrated. They need to be experienced. I'm hoping that show will come to pass and very excited about it. What do you think in respect to the ways that Love Italy is operating today, what are some of your aspirations for the future? My focus is on Americans because they're very philanthropic and most Americans love Italy and many have Italian heritage. I think conservation for Italian cultural heritage is a humanitarian cause. And if we keep putting it off, I think many of these treasures won't be left for us to enjoy. We all love Italy's monuments, its amazing art, enchanting piazzas. There's so much, and it would be impossible for the government to maintain it all. If we all want to continue to enjoy these Italian treasures, we all need to pitch in to support their conservation. Tracy, thank you for sharing some of the background of how you got started with Love Italy and some of your plans. I'm really grateful you made the time today. Thank you, Max. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. We've been speaking today with Tracy Roberts, co-founder and vice president of Love Italy. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.